The spookiest thing that I can recall didn't even happen while I was awake. My roommates had left for the weekend. I had just had dinner with some other friends and decided to not stay out late. I went home, poured myself a glass of wine, went to bed early, and fell asleep fairly quickly. Everything about it seemed pretty normal until I realized that everything was black, dark. I couldn't see anything and started to feel myself tilting backward, almost as though I was on a slide going headfirst. I had remembered that I had been laying flat, backside down, and now I couldn't move my appendages. Everything about me felt heavy. I thought I had heard whispers and faint booming sounds, but again, I couldn't see anything. I was scared and afraid that this instance would literally scare me to death. The tilting feeling didn't let up. Instead, it felt like I was falling down the slide at an even quicker pace. I wanted to throw up. My heart was racing. There was nothing I could do, and I was also unable to scream for help. I'm not exactly sure how I eventually snapped out of it though, but the next thing I knew, I felt a jolt and popped up out of my deep sleep. I woke up with a song on my face, shining through my blinds, in a sweat, and crying. I had regained control of my arms and legs, walked around my apartment, and noticed there was still no one to be found. My roommates were still gone. And to this day, I'm not sure what caused this case of sleep paralysis or whether I actually was kicking and screaming in my sleep, if I was just dreaming, or if anybody could actually hear my muffled screams. You're listening to Cross Modal a podcast project made by neuroscience grad students curious about the philosophical, cultural, and artistic implications of certain topics from our classes and research. My name is Nico, and you'll be hearing me pop in and out through our various episodes. Hope that's all right. Each one will be somewhat unique in approach and theme, so we hope you'll stay tuned with us as we experiment through this pilot season. Hey, Kristen, what are you doing in here? <laughs> well, you know how we're supposed to be recording the intro for Fright Club right now? Do you mind if I join in? I love this topic and I have some kind of random stuff I want to talk about. Okay, cool. Let's go. But wait, let me go through the dramatic intro first. <laughs> Fear may be as old as life itself. It's a fundamental, deeply wired reaction that has evolved over the history of biology to protect organisms against perceived threats to their well-being or existence. However, fear both consumes us and lures us in. Historically, we are the safest and healthiest the human species has ever been. But people experience fear over seemingly non-life-threatening things every day. Remember when we tried to record this the first time? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I guess this can actually go in the podcast where we recorded this whole 30 minute segment and the phone wasn't working. So none of it was captured, which is my biggest fear. Yeah. Welcome yeah. to the episode about. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Not 
That is the intro. <laughs> <laughs> that is the intro. Okay. I just found another intro for this. Yeah. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's talk about this for real. So fear. We have holidays dedicated to fear, and right now we're devoting an entire podcast episode to it. This episode is a compilation of real-life scary stories and the science behind generating a fear response. So let's do a little experiment of our own. Turn the volume up, turn off the lights, and listen to these spooky stories. How do you react to them? Do you love or hate to experience fear? Does your heart race? Do your hands get clammy? Do you feel a little on edge? Do you have a persistent need to look behind you? After all, there could be someone standing right there. I will never forget somewhere when I was six or seven years old, I became convinced that there was some sort of spirit that lived in our basement. And I always had this fear about our basement and I would not want to go in the basement. And thankfully I had a little sister and I would send her. Um, and so she would always, what are little siblings for? What are little, little siblings for? And so she would always go first. Um, and then there came this point where, you know, if I had to get something out of the basement, I would run down the stairs as fast as I could grab it and run up. And in my imagination, it took all these different forms. Um, I became convinced that our house had been built on some sort of ancient burial ground that had not been properly identified. And there were spirits related to the people that were buried under the house. I have no idea where this came from, but I began to believe it as true. And then when I hit adolescence, I faced this really difficult choice. So we had a bedroom set up down there. And I weighed my independence as a teenager versus my absolute fear of the basement. And I actually moved into the basement. But it was a, a love-hate relationship where I would get so terrified in my own room in the basement um, that I didn't know what to do with myself sometimes. Interesting. Well, there's a bit of a theme. You doing that as a youth and then you driving with the scary stories even though you're terrified. Yeah, there's that like tension yeah, there yeah. of like, creating it, right? It's like kind of exciting. I think yeah, I feel I the same way about spicy food. <laughs> it's, a, it's a similar type of thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then obviously having a background in, in cognitive science and, and neural networks and that kind of stuff, I think it's fascinating how how we start to make those connections and how we reinforce those connections and and how those play interpersonally. My last office at Arizona State University was a former military base and it had been an Air Force base. And there was a lot of talk about the supernatural there and that there were former ghosts. They had converted the former officers' quarters into offices. And so we would come in sometimes and the pictures would be knocked off the walls. Glass broken, frame on the ground, you know, all of the pictures knocked off the walls. And just in our suite. Not on the suite next door. It's not like there was an earthquake and like the whole building shook, like specific to our suite. Um, and we actually had a um, episode of, I forget, is it on like Discovery Channel or one of the, where they do like the ghost hunters and they actually came to campus. Oh my God. <laughs> and they did a lot of work on campus and they actually identified like our building and our floor as like a hot spot with whatever system hot that spot. they use to look for these things. Cool. So there, that, uh, 
I don't know if that made me feel better or worse. It, like you never wanted to be the first person in in the morning, yeah, yeah, because you felt responsible for cleaning up the glass if they'd broken all the pictures. But there were mornings you'd come in and you'd just have this eerie feeling, and you'd look out in the lot, and the pictures would all be down. So it only happened in a couple of years. It only happened a couple times that all of them broke, which was really creepy. Like twice when like every picture is down off the wall, and you're just like that. Oh, that is not okay. Um, but then oftentimes too, things would just be crooked. And and that was almost more, cause you, you wondered when it happened, right? Like, was that last night? Or is it that crooked, been, that picture been crooked for a while? Did someone's backpack hit it? Like, yeah. it led to a lot more sort of unease. I've been pretty lucky. I haven't really had any experiences except once perhaps when I was in college, I guess I'll describe it. Um, I was driving with my friend to pick up a couch that we purchased from Craigslist. So great start already <laughs> to the story. Um, conveniently, it doesn't have anything to do with the individual that we got the couch from, but on the way there, we um, were kind of relying on Google Maps because we didn't know the way. And it tells us to make a left. So we're, I'll start here. We're going down this really, really kind of beautiful um, foresty road, like we're covered with a canopy of like leaves and stuff. It's really beautiful. Um, and then we notice that we're also alone and there isn't really any sort of like traffic signs anywhere. We can't tell where we are. We're just completely 100% relying on the um, GPS. And also it's not telling us anything to do. So we're like, okay, cool, stay straight. But all of a sudden it says, turn left. And we're like, yeah, of course we're gonna turn left because we're gonna listen to the GPS, whatever it says goes. We're gonna turn left and uh, we did. And we ended up down this path that wasn't paved at all. It was covered in grass and it was overgrown. And then ahead there was this, this is so weird, but a school chair. So like a, a, a wiry chair that you would see in a movie um, that had a set, like this really creepy old school setting. We see this chair sitting like slightly off center and it's like, it's not straight facing us, it's kind of diagonal, so it's facing to the left a little bit. And then behind the chair is this like rusty chain that's hanging from or between two trees. And then uh, my friend, she starts to say, my neck hurts really bad. And I'm just like, what? What do you mean your neck hurts really bad? What's going on? She's like, we need to get out of here right now. I'm like, oh, why, what? Oh my God. So she like, rap she's driving. She rapidly reverses out and then like, like goes down the back onto the street and then she looks at me very, very seriously and says, Nicole, I know you don't believe in this kind of stuff, but that has only happened to me one other time in a place where um, it was suspected that there was some sort of vengeful ghost or whatever. I never intend to go back to that, that side overgrown road. I was lying in bed. I woke up in the middle of the night and I looked out the door of my bedroom and there, looking over the banister, uh, I saw a ghostly figure of a boy looking over the banister, looking down over uh, to, the, to the first floor, but he had shorts and suspenders and a beanie. And that's, um, that's how... So I remember. When you say ghost-like figure, what do you mean by that? So it was... It? Whitish, yeah. So, oh, okay. like, so your classic apparition, like, right? This... But as time went on, my pillow continued to fall off my bed every night. And but there was one night when I woke up as my pillow was falling off off my bed, and I saw that same little boy pulling the pillow off the bed. That's so creepy. So... <laughs> uh... <laughs> and I so. 
I closed my eyes, so it was startling for both of us. Um, so I closed my eyes, and when I opened them up again, he was gone, and or saw him again, and my pillow stopped falling off my bed. So you knew he was the cause. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's it's very spooky. Um, and you were the only one, you have six siblings, and you right. were the only one of the six who's seen it, including right. your sister Debbie, whose room it was originally. Correct. And I feel that that boy has stayed with me for a very long time. So you felt like it was a uh, kind spirit. When I think back to the ghost, I don't have the sense of fear. But it's interesting because whenever I tell my story, like people get goosebumps. Yeah, and... it's, it's scary to me. Yeah. <laughs> and I, as I told Margaret, ever since she told me the story, I've been every, every time I'm in my bed, I'm like, don't pull the pillow away from me. Every once in a while, my pillow will fall off my bed. Oh, still? And I'll, every once in a while. This is a story from my childhood when I was living in Camden, Maine. We lived on a cul-de-sac and there were a few other houses up the road and down to the cul-de-sac and it wasn't really our house itself that was haunted, but the land that the neighborhood was built on. And this ghost, unfortunately, I never had the experience of seeing her, but my sister did, my mother did. And so did almost all of our neighbors. Needless to say, I'm quite jealous. So this ghost, she would go from house to house. And she would usually spend a few weeks with everybody before moving on to the next one, going all the way down the houses to the street and then all the way back down the other side and around the cul-de-sac. And she was just known as the lady in the mirror because that's where she would appear was in mirrors and you didn't just see her apparently she would bang on the mirror and it would shake and sometimes things on countertops would move with the force of her beating this mirror it was my sister that unfortunately got scared the worst by the lady in the mirror whenever she was at our house she would mostly show up for my sister and she was described as wearing really old clothing like 16th century bonnet and different people would also say she held different things. Some people said that she didn't have anything in her hands. Some people said she held a knife, but everyone said she had this crazed look in her eye and she would stare into your soul as she just banged on the mirror, like she was trying to get through it to get to you. We actually had people move out of the neighborhood because of the lady in the mirror. I have experienced the old hag syndrome. Oh, yes. Um, so sleep paralysis is called it. And, and, I, and that definitely is fear. There are two times where it was very strong. So there are times when it's just you wake up and you just have, you just have a sense that something's in the room, you cannot move, you're paralyzed. You can't speak, you can't, like, you can't do anything, and you're just, there's definitely fear. But there have been times, and one time in particular, I was in central Pennsylvania, or I used to live on this farm, that an old fa Amish farm that had um, a summer kitchen that had been renovated into an apartment. And it was two floors, and the, and the, the second floor was sort of like a loft, but that was my bedroom, that's where my bedroom was. 
with the old hag syndrome, this time I felt like it was coming up the stairs and and I couldn't move. And so I was um, like, I slept on a futon at that point, at that time, but I didn't see anything, okay. but I was just so, but I felt like I could just feel this per or this, um, this sense of someone walking up the stairs and coming towards me and all of a sudden just like with as though they just dropped on their knees onto my bed oh, like just oh, wow. came down hard but there ha there were other times where I did see a shadowed figure that looked like an old hag so this is something that happens in all cultures and I think most people experience sleep paralysis at once in their life but when I was in Maine I would see the shadowy figure the, right and it looked like an old woman in a you know like in a dark cloak like just you know yes so chilly it was definitely ch it is chilling so no. you can't move but yeah right and are you asleep while this is happening or do, so, are you awake from what I can tell, I'm awake, and so that's why it's so fearful. Um, yeah, that's it's so scary. because you're awake, you but you can't. can't move. My first memory of fear was this um, unknown in my parents' closet. Uh, my mom had this fur coat, which I did not like. And it was, the closet was sort of deep, it was dark, a bit messy. Um, I could not really go into it or come out of it. I, I never messed with it. Uh, and I remember whenever they asked me to get anything from their room, or I, I, I wanted to go together and there was nobody else in the room, I used to run to the room, get that thing, and then run out. <laughs> um, and that's the first time that I was actually scared of something. Of course, that went on for a couple of years, I would say. So <laughs> it took it took me a while to overcome that, but uh, yeah, that has been my first memory of being scared of something. I think I remember my first nightmare. Oh really? Yeah. Uh, so I would dream about this big white space. Um, I couldn't see any boundaries anywhere. Uh, in the middle of this area or whatever, there would be this one this pair of white kids, like really '90s white kids. The sneakers with the like blue label mm -hmm. on the yeah. back of the heel, um, and then like all of a sudden I would feel extreme discomfort and, and then filth would flash everywhere. The kids would become disgusting and dirty and red, and there's goo and the everything would in this void would be filled with this disgusting gunk and filth. Then I would like wake up in a shock. So what did you think? Wow, that chair in the middle of the street story, incredibly spooky. That storyteller is so talented. <laughs> it was me. I was that storyteller. <laughs> Special thanks, though, to our other amazing storytellers, starting with Dr. Elizabeth Doe, who opened up the episode for us, as well as the individuals we just heard from, Dr. Garrett Westlake, Margaret Ryan, Dr. Nazgul Nerozi, and Deidre, as well as Crossmodal members Roz and Megan. Now back to the topic at hand. Hearing about the old hag syndrome really freaked me out, so I guess I can feel fear. But what was just going on in our brains to produce this physical response we're defining as fear? We need to dive into this a little bit more, I think. 
So remember learning about patient SM back in grad school? She had a disease that completely destroyed her amygdala during childhood, and it reduced her ability to feel fear. From her case, we know that the fear response starts in the amygdala. Patient SM was not scared while handling large spiders or snakes, while walking through fearful attractions, or even while watching horror films. So no amygdala equals no fear. But what about if you have a larger than average amygdala? I actually remember a study that was conducted at Stanford University that looked into this. They found that larger amygdalas are correlated with an increased anxiety response in children. So I guess all this shows that the amygdala is a master regulator of stress-related emotions. You know, now that you mentioned this, I'm actually remembering that there are some other brain areas alongside the amygdala that are also important for fear, right? Like the thalamus, the hippocampus, prefrontal cortex. Um, I I think the pathways are coming back to me. Uh, So correct me if I'm missing something, but let's say you see a threat or hear a spooky story. The amygdala will activate the thalamus and together they're going to immediately prepare your body to be more efficient in handling the dangerous situation. So your brain will become hyper alert, your pupils are going to dilate and your breathing will accelerate. Plus your heart rate and blood pressure will rise and then you'll have increased blood flow to your muscles. So basically the body's resources are routed away from organs that aren't vital to immediate survival. Yes, that is exactly correct. And this response actually happens really, really fast, but it's not always necessary. And it certainly wasn't necessary while we were listening to all those spooky stories earlier. So at this point, the hippocampus comes into play after the thalamus is activated. Right, right, the hippocampus. I'm actually getting flashbacks to class. It's important for memory, right? Ha, yes, but the hippocampus also assesses situations and determines whether or not you have perceived it before. So after the hippocampus, the prefrontal cortex is activated. And this is like a decision-making center of the brain. And it uses information gathered by the hippocampus to interpret the perceived threat. This helps a person know whether a perceived threat is real and valid. Ooh, can you elaborate? Hmm. These brain regions are why you would probably, well, hopefully, act differently around a snake in the wild versus a snake at the zoo. (laughs) Yeah, you don't know what I do. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) Uh, yeah, cool, cool. And um, actually, you know, I remember another thing about patient SM. When she was exposed to high levels of carbon dioxide uh, to induce the feeling of suffocation, she reported feeling fear, which totally goes in line with the amygdala not being the only brain region that can generate a fear response but also doesn't quite go in line with what we said about the amygdala being important for the fear response. Ugh, being suffocated. That actually sounds really scary and stressful. Are stress and fear related at all? That's a really good question. And again, we're bringing up patient SM, but speaking (laughs) of stress, she had a higher frequency of panic attacks compared to other people. Plus, uh, there was also a study conducted by researchers at Yale and Duke that found that veterans uh, who experienced PTSD had smaller amygdala compared to veterans without PTSD. So hmm, I guess the amygdala's role in fear is a lot less clear than we initially thought. But I do like where you were going with the stress question. And this is also a great segue into the next portion of this episode. It's almost like we wrote this out in advance or something. <laughs> okay, Kristen, now it's time for your dramatic intro. <clears throat> So we have a grasp on how the fear response happens, but why do humans love to feel fear? We go on roller coasters and thrill rides. 
Some people climb mountains and jump out of perfectly good planes. However, most people spare themselves from the physical and mental repercussions of such dangerous antics and merely go to the local movie theater to watch the latest horror film, knowing full well that they'll probably scream, shudder, gasp, and grab the person next to them in terror. We graciously allow horror movies to hijack our amygdalas. For this next discussion, we will hear from two panelists, Dr. Gladys Shaw and Dr. Stefania Margitu. Gladys is a neuroscientist studying stress responses who will give us more insight into how stress plays into all of this. And Stefania is a professor of film and digital media. Maybe they can help us figure out our obsession with fear. Before we begin, I'd like to give a brief content warning for mentions of animal research and trauma. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Gladys Shaw. Um, I study um, the impact of chronic adolescent stress and trauma on um, adult behaviors and neurological outcomes, specifically mitochondrial function um, within the hippocampus and prefrontal cortex. Hi, I'm Stefania. I'm a visiting assistant professor at Loyola University, New Orleans. Um, I received my PhD from University of Southern California, and um, I recently published a book on teen television. It's called Teen Television. (laughs) (laughs) It's part of a guidebook series, um, so it's meant to be kind of introductory for either like late, you know, high school students or early, early college students kind of getting into genre studies, um, film and media studies, or even broadly, just if they're interested in issues about teens. Awesome. That sounds really interesting. And Gladys, what like age group are you studying in the lab? So we use rodents. Um, So like postnatal day 35 through 60. um, That's doing a human correlate is kind of rough, but it's kind of like seventh grade to undergrad years um, because adolescence actually stops in humans at 25. A lot of people fail to um, notice that. Um, It doesn't just stop at 18 when like you are legally an adult, um, you are biologically, neurologically an adult way into your 20s. So we do cover that entire span of um, neurological development that happens. Awesome. So you guys already have some parallels, which is really cool. (laughs) Thank you guys for being here today. Um, Like I mentioned in my email, we're trying to discuss the intersection between how your body physiologically responds to fear and how that might be translated into like fearful experiences such as horror films. So to kind of get in the mood here, what are your personal opinions on scary or like horror films? Do you guys like them? Do you hate them? It depends on the horror film for me. Um, anything with like dolls or puppets, I can't do. I don't know why. Just can't do it. Um, everything else is fair game. Yeah, I, it really depends. I think this changes with age too. Like sometimes different things can trigger me. Um, Yeah, and I think almost the more far away it is from reality, 
the the better. <laughs> so, um, you know, almost this like a new era of the more like psychological thriller that's more based in realism, kind of a return to that is a little scarier <laughs> to me, like the more that it could happen or the more that it's like a dystopian kind of horror um, kind of gets me more, more so than other things. Um, but I've had to watch a lot of different types of, of horror and trauma um, with and without trigger warnings and um, which is also like a huge issue in our field right now. Um, that is interesting to also see how people are kind of managing their fear based on wanting to be in the conversation still. I was actually just reading um, there was like a guide for people who want to see a squid game, but don't like can't be exposed to that much of the horror and kind of brutality. So it's kind of like tips um, from a psychologist about like, hide your eyes and only look at the corner of the screen, you know, or there was also some advice like, just state your truth and that it's triggering for you and that you don't have to watch it like this new kind of water cooler series. So that actually, I mean, this isn't a question that we actually had prepared, but our last episode was on cross-modal plasticity and how much of like, when you think about something that's a fearful response, is it, does it incorporate all the senses or are some senses more important than others? Can you redact, if you will, if you cover your eyes or like turn down the volume? I think it depends on the situation. So like in regards to like TV shows, probably just visual is enough or um, covering your ears is enough. But if it's like a haunted house, also I can't do haunted houses, it's, it's too much. If they like have any types of like smells or anything like that, that like tactile people actually touching you can't do it. But yeah, that's actually a really interesting question. And I don't know if anyone has done any like explicit research on that type of stuff. One of the things that we were curious about is what are the factors, I guess like there's probably many, so the key factors that you take into account when generating film or some form of media yeah, it was interesting that you that you all kind of posed like the question of sound, especially in horror. It's a really good time to talk about sound design and how integral it is, because, yeah, you can't imagine kind of closing your eyes, but still hearing those cues, right, that make you scared, that, you know, tell you like the rhythm that things are going to get scarier. And it's a it's a time when like as a professor, um, when teaching sound design, students really get it when you talk about its significance in horror because it is so integral more so than okay this is happy now and this is sad you know like there's something about the rhythm of the sound design that goes with the film that's really in sync and it's why a lot of directors why a lot of people work closely with um, specific sound design but sound gets not considered as important, you know, sometimes. Um, and also like even with television, like radio was a predecessor. So it's really interesting you brought that up. Have these factors evolved over time? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's audience savvy, like, you know, you have like the classic Hollywood narrative that we know of, it's very linear. Um, a lot of films are structured that way. We have classical sitcom and drama structures. Um, and so there's, there's narratives that we're familiar with that usually also have obviously reliable aesthetics too, but you know, in experimental cinema and as things change and adapt to experimental modes, 
part of the rebellion of like Soviet montage films um, as the rebellion against American film was doing all non-linear montage films. Um, and then Americans, of course, adapted montage, right? Like the montage is like such a popular trope in so many types of films to show a course of time. So something like the falling in love montage or like a sports montage. So things definitely get adapted as technology advances as well, like having handheld screen footage, right? So something like the the documentary style of the Blair Witch Project. Again, that was a new novelty because it felt more real. Again, like sound technology is considered obviously like post um, silent cinema, having that ability to incorporate the sound design and special effects with that too. But also films that don't have sound or don't have those cues also give you that scare of like, oh no, I don't know what I'm supposed to be feeling, you know, and this is actually scarier. Like it leaves the suspense more so there. Like, so even like there's an early example from film, it's kind of become like an urban myth that people were scared of one of the first early film screenings because it was like a train coming at um, the audience and they had never seen it before. So there was a novelty towards it. No Country for Old Men has about only um, 16 minutes of sound in the whole film. Um, so that actually adds to that. It didn't really catch on because, again, I think it's more like that novelty element. Um, but when you have the didn't, didn't like Jaws or something like that, the suspension build up and then the closure. I was reading up on different type of horror genres in general and a lot of Feminist scholars have talked about like paralleled it with, you know, like a teen film is akin, obviously, they're going to be metaphors and allegories to puberty and different elements of adolescence, like Carrie, obviously, is a big one that's gotten remade, Scream, you know, and those different elements, but also the kind of similar closure that you get from the bodily elements. Um, Linda Williams is huge for this. So kind of comparing the excess in films like melodrama, like the crying as a release and how that's quite similar to this, the scream as release too, right? So these tropes are kind of like, you know, part of genre too. And they, and they can be more connected than one thinks and more gendered, I think, than people think too. So it sounds like the tropes are kind of changing over time. Is Are those changes just based in like directors like wanting to be novel in their new movies? Or is that at all based also on like science? Yeah, I mean, I think um, like the tropes and I think there's, it's both like a, there's a science and an art to it too, like because within the formula sometimes, um, but I think in, in horror films too, there's like this knowledge, like any kind of quality filmmaker kind of has to pay homage to past films. Mm -hmm. um, so you have these like direct links or Easter eggs um, like to other films or other directors of the time so you pay a lot of you know kind of it's paying homage to different filmmakers and knowing that horror films are so meta right and so like hyper postmodernist now that there's so much like reboots and remakes um as far as the science goes to like making that I think there is a lot of it. And I think what's interesting when you bring that in is that it brings in a lot of the folks who 
do things like editing or do things like sound design um, and have to be more involved in these kind of technical aspects too that often gets overlooked, right? That is beyond like just the director directing the actor, but it's a lot of working with new technologies and building it up, right? Or asking the sound designer, what can we do? Or special effects, right? Like some, some folks love like the classic canon of horror films exclusively. Some folks find, you know, like the, like the, uh, special effects of the time like it doesn't work right it's like too dated as well um, so I think with every technology that goes behind that um, you have to adapt to new audiences and what they're used to. I think adding to the science part of it um, I know a lot of companies now are using uh, more psych studies to determine the color palette of their movies um, the order of events in their movies. A lot of it is like EEG um, and a lot of um, audience testing with that EEG equipment on their heads. Um, and having that scientific input just to see where your brain is being activated, albeit it is surface level, but it's something, um, really does make things scarier or more emotive. Um, I know for a fact, Pixar uses this a lot. Um, and I had a friend in my master's at George Mason um, work with a company that like did something with Pixar's, um, the movie with the emotions. Um, Inside Out, yes. Um, worked with Inside Out and they did that EEG just to make sure that joy was making the audience feel happy, sadness was making the audience feel sad, rage was making the audience a little hyped up, things like that. So just, just having that input in just like the testing and the organization of a movie really makes it more personable to the audience. And it's something that people really overlook and it's kind of integral now. I guess like sticking with that theme, Gladys, could you go into like a little bit more detail about the stress responses that you study in rodents and how those might actually have parallels into humans? Yeah, so, um, we use a stressor called chronic repeated predation stress. Um, it uses the evolutionary um, cat and mouse type of thing. It's not really a cat, it's a rat and a mouse. Um, rats are natural predators of mice. Um, and we protect these mice and expose them to a rat. Nothing happens to the mice. They are not contacted by the rat, they're fine. <laughs> Um, but they do have that visual, that auditory, that um, olfactory stimulus of being in harm's way, which activates the stress response system, which is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Um, that's a lot of words. It sounds really complex. It low-key is complex, but I'm going to try to simplify it. Um, so the HPA axis basically activates when you are in danger. It's responsible for your fight or flight system. So when there's a stressor present, um, your hypothalamus activates, sends a signal to your pituitary gland, which sends a signal to your adrenals. Your adrenals release epinephrine um, or adrenaline, which circulates throughout your body, causing that fight or flight behavior. Um, it also releases a hormone called cortisol, which is the stress hormone. It's also called corticosterone in uh, rodents, but humans and rodents have both cortisol and corticosterone, just different concentrations. And that actually triggers a different area of your brain, 
your hippocampus and your amygdala to number one, remember the environment, remember the the things that are around you. So in case you are placed back in that environment, you know there might be danger present. Let me get ready to run or let me just avoid it. And your amygdala, that signal goes there to um, make sure that you have the correct emotional processing for that environment and anticipation for that stressor. So yeah, how it correlates to humans. So a lot of previous predation stress studies, and I don't want to like knock any of these studies because they're great. Um, they will just use the odor of a predator. So they'll have like fox urine or cat urine, which I think is completely disgusting, but like you can do what you got to do. It still triggers the stress response, but you don't have that visual or auditory input. So it's kind of like walking into a broom and you it smells very strongly of bleach, like something's wrong. But I don't know if it's like just really clean or if someone just like had a whole Dexter scenario here. But the stress that we do, it has all of those activations of like the eyes and the ears and everything like that. Um, and it makes it more real to experiencing a stressor in real life. So it's like someone actually coming up to you in a dark alley versus just, you know, walking into a room and nothing really happening. And that's like the only signal. So our stressor is equally salient between males and females. Part of my work is also doing sex differences and it allows us to see the differences um, in the activation of the system, how hormones may play a role into it, especially during adolescence and how, yeah, all of that plays together to give rise to hormonal sex specific things. So I think you ended on this answer, but are there any biological or environmental events that can lead to abnormal fear or stress responses in the laboratory setting? So yes, uh, in the laboratory setting, having that chronic stress, so not just doing that paradigm once, doing it multiple times. We do it 30 times in their lifetime, and that is enough. Even 10 times is enough, but we just really want to make sure it works. But also in real life with humans, if you are chronically under stress, even sitting in like heavy traffic every day of your life for two years is considered chronic stress. So that does cause some dysregulation of your HPA axis. So it increases the sensitivity of your hypothalamus and it makes it so that that stress response system is activated at a lower stress level. In the most extreme cases, this is called anxiety. So the activation of your stress response system when nothing's happening in your environment, it's just you have an anxiety attack and that it just happens. That's it's literally what it is. So just the repeated trauma that happens either in the lab or in real life really does modulate your brain and kind of cause some maladaptive things that kind of suck. <sighs> That was so good. <laughs> All right. I'm a committee meeting next week. So I'm like, I'm on it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do you have anything to follow up with that, Stefania, about maybe how natural variabilities in humans' experiences throughout life could impact how they react to different scenes in films or media? 
Yeah, and that was all so fascinating, uh, Gladys. Thank you for sharing. I feel I'm getting an education as well. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think maybe for you know, also as somebody who just lived in California, in Los Angeles for seven years, I was like, oh, that was stressed in regards to traffic. But I do have. Um, it's such a sensitive time when to teach something like horror. I think, and I think. Um, there's kind of sometimes like a toughness of, you know, being like a film studies or a media studies or screen studies student that people try to instill. Like you should be able to watch any of these and um, because that's part of the education, which is maybe a, a more of an old school. Um, I definitely was a part of that, like pedagogically. But I think now, like because we are getting different content and trigger more acknowledged and you know sometimes we have very serious screenings you know in theaters that are meant to be respected but sometimes you know um even when I you know we taught like the adaptation of the exorcist different horror especially and especially for a young woman because so much of horror is based on violence towards the young girl or women right and especially in this climate of I mean it's always been there but you know more awareness about things like sexual assault on campus or students maybe leaving an environment for the first time so pedagogically if you know students don't want to watch something or don't want to see something in the past it's almost had to be like you really have to explain why, you know, and I'm kind of, for me personally, I'm kind of at the point, if you can't watch this, if this is triggering for you, you know, then absolutely, like, you shouldn't watch it, right? It's just, if, you know, your mental health is as important as other parts of your health, and this is triggering for you. So there are some types of films, or there are some things in films, I think horror with, you know, its allegory and its metaphors sometimes provides closure and provides this kind of, like, pleasurable fear for people because it is that release that they get from it and then feeling I think you you bring up like resilience later like feeling that you have conquered it too so I think it's definitely a sense of catharsis right you know and we're seeing it more on social media now too right like content warning trigger warnings being very careful not just of like Gladys said like one exposure but multiple exposures over time you know like some folks talk about how the other side of that is being desensitized to that violence and media and the news, right? Um, so I think it's it's on both levels of it. But I think for people who have experienced something similar to what we see in these horror and in these trauma films, you do have to be careful and mindful of what a student could actually be experiencing if you are exposing them to something like this. So it's just something I'm, you know, as I'm out of the PhD and then starting my professor career, I'm thinking about that's like such an amazing tie between like the science that Gladys is, is talking about and then what you actually see as a response from viewers. And I think that's so important to note because it's not just creating movies that are scary, but like they're actually causing physiological reactions in people. And yeah, they are variable based on everything that happened in someone's past that leads to how they perceive it. Just, it's also cool and interesting, um, which I guess is why we're all here. So another question that we had, which is kind of taking away from individual variability, but focusing on kind of these 
I don't want to call them. Yeah. So these like familiar tropes that we see again and again in horror films. So the haunted house, the bloodthirsty vampire, a zombie. Um, why do you think such stereotypes kind of continue to scare and fascinate people after all these years, even though, you know, we've kind of seen them again and again? Yeah. And I think it's also part like we can kind of see the evolution of through remakes and reboots and different kinds of evolutions of these kind of archetypes and tropes and like you said stereotypes it's also a lot of times meant to signify like a fear of the other um so you know or even something like teen wolf you know about being an outsider um because my focus is like teen media when you do have whether it's like fantasy or horror you know and which is kind of getting played around a lot recently or like supernatural elements, right? Like Sabrina, the teenage witch. Like I have a a friend who has a tween who says it's too scary, right? It's too scary for her to watch at this point. She said it's like a horror show. And, you know, somebody's like, no, it's as scary as Harry Potter. But I think just because of the way that it has adapted, because it is newer, it is a bit scarier and kind of keeps that constant um, gloom element. But I think, you know, they're kind of like classic elements that we go back to, like as, as with other genres too. And when you combine it with something else that you're interested, whether it's like a film about teens and horror and werewolves and others, or about foreignness and others and zombies or fear of, of zombie apocalypse, fear of the end of the world, dystopian narratives, right? Health, pandemics, <laughs> right? Everybody was watching gosh, what's the famous pandemic film that everyone watched? And I blocked it out. Because the Contagion. It was Contagion, yeah. Um, that was like what became like such a popular film, right? And it was kind of like, this is not horror, this is reality. But yeah, I think it's just things that we go back to. And I'm, yeah, someone's living in New Orleans now and which is a very like Halloween friendly city. Like everybody, you know, like in their lawns have this, things too. I went to get my nails done and someone wanted like the same, you know, like people were like, I want to design. It's like, what do you want? A ghost, a spider web, you know, all of these things. And they're scary though, but like people still have a, an actual fear of, you know, like arachnophobia, right? Like people still have fear of those things. People have fears of like masked clowns because of like it, you know, I had a friend who's like scared of mascots. <laughs> too because they were masked so yeah I think these kind of elements they come back because we can also like repurpose them you know like a zombie film set in you know different environments or you know like what does a werewolf look like in a teen setting right in a high school as well I definitely loved Teen Wolf growing up (laughs) yeah good show but it's true. It's it's not just the werewolf. It is like in high school on the lacrosse team. There are like all these different mm-hmm. So just moving forward, I guess, with a similar question, to what extent is subliminal messaging used in film to amplify the audience's sense of a, unease, suspense in the horror genre? Yeah, this got me thinking because subliminal messages are definitely not my expertise. And there's, you know, it it can mean different things. Um, Like Gladys, kind of when you were talking about um, Pixar and how they use so much, um, you know, testing. And it's funny because how I've learned about different testing is like through focus groups. And then also like in terms of just like um, 
commercial but like films are commercial too television is commercial but kind of like doing those kind of tests and that was always you know subliminal messages like in early Hollywood was definitely like a discussion as well as like propaganda on the other side big and like cold war cultures um but I think there's also like subliminal messages that are similar like you kind of get flashes sometimes in horror films right of like something you think you're seeing um so it's more of those like subtle things that I was kind of mentioning earlier like those what you would call like easter eggs for fans or you know like different things that like oh do you think you're actually seeing seeing this like kind of you know like early cinema was a lot of like people were into like magic like melier like trickery right so it's kind of going back to like that almost trickster mentality and trying to trick the eye um again I'm not like super well versed on the subject of subliminal messages but as far as like visual trickery like it's absolutely there and I mean, there's, you know, all of like, you know, there's obviously focus groups and different ways um, that that is Can like try, try to enhance. Uh huh. So I am actually taking a social psychology class right now. And one of the topics that we're studying is subliminal messaging. Um, yeah, please from go for what it. my textbook says, it sounds like subliminal messaging is only effective under very specific circumstances. So like mass subliminal messaging is very difficult to pull off. That's just what a question about that. Um, if we're talking about subliminal versus like suggestive, like mm. the differences between those two, for instance, um, I'm, I'm imagining one specific horror movie. Uh, I don't know if y'all have seen it, but Hereditary, mm. I highly recommend it, of course. Um, but something that the director did is in certain scenes, um, they wouldn't explicitly state or no, none of the characters would be like, oh, I'm, I'm scared. Oh, what's going on over there? It's like in the background, there'd be just kind of an arrangement of furniture uh, that would kind of look like maybe there's a person back there. And so while you're watching, you're like, oh, oh my gosh, what's, what should I be paying attention to? So stuff like that. Um, I wasn't sure if that should be designated as subliminal or just suggestive. Another thing that I read in my textbook was that the more direct experience a person has with the object of whatever you're trying to subliminally message, the less suggestible they will be about it because they can recall very immediately their direct experience. But if somebody doesn't, if only has like conceptual knowledge about it, then they might be more capable of being suggestible. I feel like that also ties into the pathways that Gladys was talking about earlier, where you kind of like use the hippocampus and some other areas to like assess the situation. Yeah. Also, that makes me think, does that have anything to do with biases that people have against like specific groups or like specific locations, environments, just like not being familiar with it outside of that very constructed, fearful um, narrative that they're seeing. Yeah, and even like the suggestive messages that Nico talked about, that also incorporates all the senses, which is kind of interesting. So you really do like, in order to have like the maximal response that you're supposed to get from that scene, you, you need to incorporate everything that's going on, which is, ugh, everything's connected. 
Right. Yeah, there's a new horror. Um, it's like an M. Night Shyamalan horror series on Apple TV called Servant. And one of the characters is like a, a food influencer. So while we haven't really gotten to the like technology of smell-o-vision, right? Um, I do think that there's an element, like the sensorial elements in the film are definitely there to mess with you, right? So that's what I'm more like, definitely more familiar with in terms of in terms of that like just different ways or like you say like in hereditary and like Ari Aster like just different ways that the audience can not be given those cues or not be given like the obviousness of I'm scared right um and I think what you're what you're talking about too is something like very classic to horror where like the audience knows what's happening right but um the characters on the screen don't know what hap is happening right so that's like a classic like he's right behind you or it's coming from inside the house like when we see something when when the characters don't um it's, it's pretty classic right but it really adds to that so now i think this could be a good time to kind of transition into why we might like horror films so there's like so many reasons kind of why not to like them there's a lot of previous life experiences that could play into a negative experience but like people still go back to watch these films and one of the things that we had kind of realized when we were doing research for this podcast is that the amygdala is not just associated with fear but it's also associated with positive or re rewarding feelings um so Gladys, is this something that you could maybe talk about a little bit more and also mention how stress responses might have any positive feelings or perception associated with them? Yeah, so this is a little outside of my expertise, but I will try my best. Um, so yeah, the amygdala does modulate some emotional responses, not just fear, but also reward. Um, and there is some research showing that people who seek out stressful um, experiences and stressful experiences aren't just scary things, right? It's also like riding a roller coaster, bungee jumping, skydiving, things that I have no like <laughs> reason to do, not jumping out of a plane anytime soon, but people like that adrenaline rush, that adrenaline is going to be triggered by your HPA axis. Um, so they found that the people that like doing that, um, they have that stress response, but the amygdala also causes you to seek out more reward, um, to kind of balance out that stressful experience. So yeah, you do have that release of cortisol as well, but you are seeking out more serotonin, more dopamine to kind of make up for that. Um, so, and some people also, um, like the reward of being safe at the end of that stressful experience. So if you do skydive, right, um, you're scared when you initially jump out of the plane, but once you hit the ground, it's like, oh yeah, I did it, I'm invincible. That's that rush of dopamine, that rush of serotonin, maybe even some oxytocin in there, who knows? Um, that just causes you to want to do it over and over again. Um, so yeah, it's really, interesting that stress itself is not the reward it's what happens after that can be rewarding i just have to jump in again thinking about the neuroscience of relief that is so interesting okay we can get into that later though <laughs> so one of the theories that we actually came up with ages ago is that perhaps people um 
who don't have much activation of those fear-related circuits could be the ones kind of pursuing those experiences. That's really interesting, like in the sociology aspect of it, thinking of the types of horror that different societies prefer um, and seeing if that correlates to the actual type of danger that they might experience. I don't, I don't even have like a example. I don't know, maybe someone being chased in like a savanna somewhere. I will never experience that. That might be scary, but for someone who lives in a savanna with lions and tigers, that might be like off the table for them. So yeah, that's that would be really interesting to look into and something that I really didn't think about. And I guess kind of touching on that idea of relief is also that idea of like resilience, like it's over, but also like you did it and you can probably do it again. Do you like look at resilience in your research and could resilience play a part in enjoying horror films? So I don't look at resilience uh, in my research. My lab doesn't either, um, but there is a lab um, at the university that specifically looks at resilience following stress. Um, but yeah, I do think that that could play a role into enjoying horror in any type of stress inducing situation. Um, because I, I don't really know the neurobiology of resilience, why people are resilient and why some people aren't. Um, but I would assume it would be one of two things. So either you've experienced it so much that you are numb to it. So it's more so a habituation, um, uh, just you just give up trying to escape from that stressor because you know you're going to experience it again and there's like nothing you can do about it. Or there's just something happening where your HPA axis is just not activating, whether that's an evolutionary thing to protect the species or not. I have no clue. Yeah, looking to see if that's like related to the type of media those individuals seek out, um, I think would be a really interesting like dissertation project, not for me, but for someone else. <laughs> And that hints on something that I find really interesting. So one of the, the major themes of this podcast is also how every person or brain is different from one another. And that's, I feel like the conclusion that we have at the end of every episode. Um, so you just mentioned that some of even your rodents, like you see different responses over time. Is that normal when you're studying stress and fear in the laboratory? Yeah, it is. Um, we like to say that our brains are a mosaic. Um, all of our brains end up being a brain at the end, but just it doesn't matter. Like the, the type of stone that makes up the mosaic of your brain is different, right? And it's different between each person. Some people have more mosinite than other people. Some people have more onyx than other people, right? Um, and that gives rise to that variation um, in their stress response system and honestly, any other neurological or behavioral response that they have to their environment. So yeah, it is pretty typical to see that in the laboratory. I think as a whole for neuroscience and for stress research and for resilience research even, I think we need to pay more attention to it and find better ways to kind of stratify and normalize for that. Because a lot of times we'll just like make a cutoff and say, oh yeah, there's a group here, there's a group here. The ones at the bottom are resilient, the ones at the top aren't, that's it. But in reality, it's a spectrum, right? So we need to see how resilient they are, how, un how receptive they are to certain things. And to my knowledge, there's not a very 
good measure of doing that. And I say that carefully because I don't want to like um, counteract all the things that I've published, but. <laughs> so I think this is the perfect tie-in to actually kind of the next segment on the podcast, which is discussing, I guess, the science of neurocinematics, how we are kind of like making these films is based on uh, like psychology and maybe the nurture side of nature versus nurture. Do you ever see yeah. a feature in film where we could take someone's work like Gladys's who studies stress and fear and incorporate those like, I don't want to call them raw emotions, but in my mind, it doesn't get more like raw than the cellular and molecular underpinnings of what we like, can, what we know is going on and incorporate those physical responses into how we are generating films. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be super cool. <laughs> um, you know, we usually it's and it's completely opposite, you know, from, you know, a lot of people who work in media studies and talk about, you know, constructs of different things or like consumerisms and different ways. Um, there's constructs or, you know, like a lot of folks like media effects was really popular. So just kind of, again, like pretty indirect correlations like violence, you know, or exposure is causing this obviously it can trigger it but these kind of like actual responses that folks get and how like different ways that I think like trauma is really important now like having intimacy coordinators on set so I think this is almost like a new kind of level where we can see these kind of responses you know and all and almost kind of speak to how different types of media now like there's um, in my race, media, and culture class, a lot of my students, you know, are saying, you know, new films about that are trying to be, you know, quote unquote, black stories, right? Trying to speak to different things are actually for them, they, they call it like trauma porn, and they say it's triggering. So it was so things like that, like how, you know, like how folks would respond to these kind of things that are trauma porn that are actually meant to be some kind of revisionist history or provide catharsis to some extent, perhaps. Um, and then we get behind who actually is producing them, who's making them, who are like, where are the checks and balances, right? Um, of like how that production process goes and the distribution process. Um, but my students have very visceral reactions to those kind of things. Um, so I think, that's especially significant as people are trying to be more inclusive, but without really having uh, doing it through all the right tools or including the people behind um, that could be more valuable. And I think this idea of neurocinematics is like the interdisciplinary dream, right? <laughs> Thanks, Gladys and Stefania. We learned a lot and can definitely elaborate on the fear discussion we started earlier. For example, and in true cross-modal fashion, we learned that everyone and everything responds to fearful stimuli differently. This could be because of past experiences like whether you've watched a lot of horror films, have previous trauma, or have a medical condition like anxiety, plus a multitude of other factors. Hallmark card statement of the hour, we're all different and our different life experiences shape our behaviors. But 
Gladys did teach us that when our brains view a stimulus as fearful, we actually all respond similarly. The hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, or HPA axis, which I like to call it, drives our stress response and allows our bodies to quickly adapt to the now fear-inducing environment. Yes, that's right. And, you know, I also really like the bit exploring why we keep watching horror films. Of course, we'll never have a perfect answer, but thinking about resilience and relief was pretty interesting. Applying the neurobiology of relief, for example, is such a cool idea. Maybe the emotional release that we feel at the end of a horror film as we let go of the anxiety and stress is a rewarding enough stimulus to keep bringing some people back to the movie theater. That, that makes sense, though I'm not sure it explains why I watch them. Do you feel like resilience or relief are involved in why you watch horror movies? Honestly, for me, it's probably a little bit of each, but I know I'm definitely happy when some horror movies are over. And in our quest to understand why people love fear, we actually stumbled upon the field of neurocinematics. Yes, this is an actual field of research. And it focuses on the connection between the mind and cinema. Horror is one of the most well-established film genres and conveniently for us, multiple neurocinematic theories exist for why people watch horror films. However, these theories are largely based on psychology and philosophy and lack of biological rationale. This seemed like the perfect reason to bring together our neurobiologist friends. And in the next portion of this episode, we'll discuss these neurocinematic theories validity. focus almost exclusively at horror as a genre since that is a genre that's known to elicit a fear response and whether or not this fear response that comes from watching horror movies is enjoyable or not so a lot of people are trying to use the field of neurocinematics to kind of capitalize on it so to figure out why people like horror films and what we can put into the next horror film to to make the most money, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of lame, but also cool. So a lot of people who are largely psychologists or philosophers are really trying to figure out like what makes people return to the theaters to watch horror films. So I'm going to read some of these theories, which are definitely rooted in psychology and philosophy. Mm-hmm. So I figured as a group of kind of neurobiologists, we could discuss them or like personal stories, really whatever. Um, yeah. So the first theory is horror film goers are a population of people who are more likely to look for an intense experience. This population has not, has not experienced war, political issues, or death. They also may not have dealt with major financial or career issues. Based on this theory, horror film watchers are mainly younger people since the older generation is thought to have stimulation fatigue and may not find horror films interesting or enticing. Nah. (laughs) I'm already like... Just because you haven't necessarily lived through World War II or whatever doesn't mean that you haven't experienced personal warfare. Everybody's experience in life is so different and a Mm -hmm. lot of people really endure like pain and torment constantly. So, I feel like this, it was, this was someone like trying to explain millennials. Yeah, like, exactly. Anything. Right. Those participation trophies. 
In fact, I find people who experience like great stressful situations, even though it's not necessarily warfare, but like financial burdens and stuff, I find that they they tend to watch more horror movies to as a stress reliever, mm -hmm. as you're expressing stress elsewhere instead of your day to day struggles. Yeah. yeah. And you would think maybe people with a height who have experienced more stress, if you think about like adaptation wise, they might be like more prone to maybe not be as scared or stressed out during a horror film, so they would right. want to Right, watch right. It. They're a little more desensitized. Yeah. Yeah. So like I'm here for the story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it also depends on on the type of horror movie. Like like mm -hmm. varying yeah. from the slasher films mm -hmm. or supernatural based. Mm -hmm. So you right true. the thought of a population that has not experienced war, like that's gory in of, of itself, or even death. Like, those are the main topics in horror films. Yeah. And I mean, lots of us have experienced, like, even not if psychological horror, but just a psychological turmoil. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, it, for instance, in movies like The Witch, which we were just talking about, you know, that's sort of the crux mm -hmm. of their power. You know, yeah. it's in the mind, not so much in the gore and the yeah, special yeah, effects. Yeah. Not so over a yes. bunch of jump scares and stuff like that. It's just yeah, that, tension building. and I would comment on that, too, because th those are the movies I am most afraid of. I, I, th the reason hmm. I don't watch standard horror films that involve like ghosts and people with a lot of startle responses, people jumping out at you, um, is because I feel it's unrealistic. Mm -hmm. And if I did watch something with more of a realistic basis to it, I am too afraid to watch this because they're too real and they're mm -hmm. possible, they could possibly happen. Like um. people getting kidnapped <laughs> and things like that. Oh, yeah. That's more of right. a thing that scares me and I don't watch any of those. So those are the types of things I would... Then don't watch The Witch. I <laughs> but it's a very good movie. Yeah, I think I like the more like horror-y, thriller movies. I'm also like super into sci-fi movies. And I feel like it's any type of movie that like has nothing to do with my life, I find interesting. I like the stuff that seems more realistic and I tend to be more afraid and hesitant to watch stuff that is unrealistic. So oh. things involving um, zombies. But I like ugly, grotesque, gross things. Like you guys have seen my Halloween costumes. I just don't, I just don't understand quite why the concept of zombie is my limit. I don't like natural disaster movies where like earthquakes or like the super volcano that's supposedly under I believe it's the it was, was it the Yellowstone yeah, Yellow Spring. Yeah, the idea of that just kind of freaks me out. So I avoid those movies as much as possible. So one of the other theories that's actually very relevant to this discussion is um, the idea that horror films create tension. Rel horror films in general have to deal with tension, relevance, and unrealism. So people enjoy the tension, um, for example, how a film can present itself in the form of mystery, suspense, gore, terror, and shock. And the content of the film is also relevant to the audience in some way. So for example, death or the unknown being the most popular themes. But the audience is you know, completely unaware aware that this movie is a fabricated reality. So a study that kind of backs up this theory is that in 1994, um, pe human subjects were shown either a clip of a, from a horror film that was known to elicit kind of a fearful response or a documentary of an animal brutally dying. And the people were more repulsed by the, the, the documentary of the animal dying because it was real, even though it had less gore than the scene from the horror film. So it kind of has to, the relevance and the unrealism there, I guess, kind of speaks to what Martina and Nicole were talking about. So if you can suspend your disbelief, <laughs> then you enjoy it more. 
Apparently. That's this theory. Mm-hmm. But is that fear or is that just disgust? That's a good disgust point, right yeah. Now. Because I, I feel like, or that's more of a, I don't even know how to describe it, but I, I'm watching an animal being killed. I wouldn't think I'm yeah. afraid of the person doing the killing or, or uh, what's happening. It's more of a just, just out of, like out absolute disgust. I don't know. The two clips or the two clip categories Probably may not different. be testing the same things. That's hmm. a good point. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah so i was a nursing major in college and my first two years we had to do clinical rotations and i was in a my first rotation was with like geriatric patients so they were older populations so nothing really like to write home about and my second rotation was orthopedic surgery and yeah i had like never really watched been like drawn towards like scary movies or like doctor shows growing up so i went and watched a knee surgery and when people get cut open i realize that i feel pain yeah. there this is a normal <laughs> thing so like i can't watch the gory scenes horror films i tried to watch this film called touristas which is essentially a bunch of people go on vacation and then someone tries to harvest their organs it's oh. a horrible plot but Oh, I was dying. Well, there are those experiments that are pretty well known by the populace, I think, were covered extensively by the media. They were done in Europe where they took volunteers, laid them down, and put on some virtual reality type of goggles, and then had that broadcast the perspective of a dummy. So it was appearing as though their body was actually the body of a dummy, and then they would stab and do various diabolical mm. things to the mm-hmm. dummy. <laughs> and, oh, I don't remember what they were measuring, actually. I don't remember what the readout was, but essentially you could test in the laboratory that people feel the model of their body could be transferred to another body. Like proprioception, almost? Definitely related to proprioceptive yeah. mechanism. I guess so your positioning is transferring your positioning. Yeah, oh yeah, so we all have mirror neurons. Like, that's a thing yeah. that we all can do. Is this I mean, a strong important. response in everyone? Well, definitely when you're young. So okay. uh, that's how you learn how to live in society and how to be a person in your culture and stuff. Mm-hmm. You mirror what your parents do and what your peers do and stuff yeah. like that. Um, I guess the idea is that that kind of peters out as you get older. But I think in some it doesn't, and it could possibly become more pronounced depending on what So then maybe in this theory when they're kind of saying that the idea that the movie's a fabricated reality isn't necessarily true. Because there's, you know, these people like us where it might be fabricated, like that's not us on right. screen kind of being tormented, but we feel it. And I mean, for Nicole and I at least, it sounds like that's why we don't watch the gory movies. I think, well, all of that is based in reality too. So yeah. even, even though it's sort of fabricated reality, it's still based in so much of what we experience. But that makes me think of the why possibly the body horror genre is so mm-hmm. powerful for a lot of people. Yeah. I love those movies. <laughs> I, but for some reason I can't watch Saw, but I can watch The Thing or The Fly. So I don't there's a little like schism there. I don't really know how that works out. Maybe because there is an element of unrealism with the thing. Yeah. Like I don't necessarily think I'm going to like sprout another head and then like this one's gonna like become a spider or something. I, I hope that doesn't happen. That would be really awkward. But versus somebody twisting my arm off, like that could happen. Don't don't do it. But that could happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That again is like based on real experience. Like it could happen. Yeah. And so that's. Yeah, so I guess the more plausible it is, the more your brain could potentially confound that mm-hmm. and convince you, oh, well, maybe this is real. Exactly. Oh, yes. Yeah. That actually kind of ties that into another theory. 
um, this thought of the thinking brain versus the emotional brain. So during a horror movie, the thinking brain tells the emotional brain that you're in a safe place, like you're in a movie theater. So that intense rush goes from being fear-inducing to enjoyable or exciting. There's the thought of art and cinema hijacking our brain's our ability to have that initial jolt response and then later like, oh, actually, I like it. Right, I was reading the reviews of The Wailing and they commented about how that movie doesn't employ the use of jump scares. The, the best psychological thrillers don't have to exactly. stoop to that kind of mechanism. Although that technique can be employed I, well, I, I, I but I know what you mean. But it's also you kind of have that aspect of sensory deprivation. How do yes. you function without one of your That's senses? Because I watched a movie, it's called Hush, from 2016, and it's about a woman who goes deaf at one point in her life after following meningitis, and so she lives alone in a house in the woods, and her nearest neighbor's like a mile away, and a home invader kills her friend who is visiting, and so she's by herself, and the home invader's watching her, and wondering why she's not freaking out. He's trying to like make faces at her, and... She's not responding because she's turned around. She doesn't hear him. And then I thought he really... she didn't have an amygdala. <laughs> <laughs> That's the big... Uh, and then she turns around and, and... Because at one point he breaks in and he, he turns around and he's right there. Oh my God. That and then so, so she, it's like a kind of cat and mouse chase. And... But she's deprived of hearing, so she can't hear when he's approaching, so she has to rely on all these different other cues. The most interesting part is I had the brightness down on my TV when I watched it, so it was really dark, Ooh, so that it, that amped up the like antics of how frightening it would be to be deaf and being chased down yes. in your own house. <laughs> no, it was an accident, so I was like, why was this so terrifying? Because, I mean, it... it but there is something, senses different. something fun about full immersion when you like try yeah. to immerse yourself in a movie like that. So why do you seek this out? I mean, in the first yeah. theory kind of proposed an idea of why that would be, but I don't know. But what's what's the motivation? Like, Same like, reason you go to roller coaster. I don't yeah. go to roller coaster. <laughs> oh wow. I, yeah, like, I don't trust technology. To... Okay. We actually talked about this. How mm -hmm. I'm I'm terrified of heights, right. specifically falling back from a tall height while in a vehicle that is wheeled and operated by somebody else. But, you know, crawling up. Oh yeah, I can't do that. And then I'll be like, oh, this could roll back at any minute and I can't do anything about it. I will just like black out. I can't do it. But I still go on roller coasters because I let, after the crest, I can like wake up again and it's fun. But that initial part is horrible. It's so horrible. But for some reason I'm willing to... And this like really ties into the next theory actually. Okay. So during a horror film, people feel distress, fear, and anxiety. After the movie, people get pleasure of the relief of it being over. Additionally, this combination could produce a cathartic effect, aka an emotional release and escape. So it kind of oh sounds like that's what, what what brings you back to roller coasters. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And this is not related to horror at all, but. I'm kind of wondering if it's sort of like the lure of procrastination in a way, because you know, like, amongst <laughs> yeah. of, you know, like staying up all night studying for the test, but then you take it and it's over and you get to sleep and it's just this. Whew. If you could break down the neurobiology of procrastination, that'd be really great. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't exploit you on here, Megan, so you don't have to answer this. So, like, people who do have phobias, like how you yes. feel about germs. Yeah. I think it's interesting that, like, you. And Nicole also having this like fear of heights, have maybe heightened fear responses, but you guys view fear-inducing stimuli like horror films so differently. 
It also kind of ties in, I guess, to the last one here is that fear is capable of creating a distraction, which can be a positive experience. So when something scary happens in that moment, we're on high alert and not preoccupied with other things that might be on our mind. I think that's also all movies. It's not really happening. It's a controlled setting. Mm -hmm. So if you can contain it in that way. That's anything. That's music. That's food. That's yeah, books. exactly. It's, books. it's, it's, any, it's, it's very storytelling old. in general. Yeah, that's true. It's sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're very lucky if there's a medium that exists in the world somewhere that can distract you like that. Yeah. yeah. And so I guess it's trying to figure out what can you put on that screen that would be the most distracting thing. Yeah, and someone did once tell me the reason that they seek out horror films is because it's the most immersive form of film um, compared to other films. I don't know if that I agree with that completely. But well, to them, that's true. Yeah, but to them, it's subjective, yeah. so I think, I think psychological movies are... Very immersive, yeah. Just by their nature. They're movies that are trying to tap into some modes of the mind that exist in literature. And, yeah. And the, the genre of cinematography is especially potent mechanism because it's all hand sensory and you don't have to put in the effort of reading a book and it, it's almost like yeah, automatic it's hypnotism mm-hmm. when you're but exactly. there is something about that how that level of engagement isn't necessarily something you have all the time like even if you are doing something you're probably not paying 100% attention to it yeah but when you fully immerse yourself in whatever it is you like in this case horror movie for that person they their brain is completely engaged and that's kind of interesting and so yeah, it pushes. It allows them to experience that escapism because they they feel that that format is a best way to like be fully immersed and distracted. My friend, who's a psychology major, I forget what he was calling it, but it's like the psychology of people who are infatuated with like two screens at the same time. So people who will put on something, like go through lengths to pick something like on Netflix or Hulu that they want to watch mm-hmm. and then immediately pick up their cell phone. And it's just this crazy reality that you go through all this effort to find something that's interesting to you just you to get distracted by something else. So I think yeah. that idea of like how of one thing taking up enough of your attention that it has like all your focus is kind of hard to come by these days. Yeah. And maybe that's one of the unique things about like going to a horror film in the movie theater. Yeah. Like you can't really be distracted by anything else. So why do you guys think people don't like being scared or watching these types of movies? That's a difficult question to ask because everything is so subjective. I mean, yeah. you can literally all the films. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the gore movies. I have no interest in seeing those because they don't correlate with my sensibilities. I don't like seeing <laughs> people being just brutal, brutalized yeah. in yeah. graphic detail. I get no pleasure from that. Who likes those movies? A we lot need to bring one of those people in A lot of people do. And I am knocking you about trying it. I have yeah. to admit, I've never seen Saw. I've never thought I, to see Saw. Maybe I would have my mind changed. But <laughs> <laughs> what I meant was Literally. violence for the sake of violence. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Let's say that. <laughs> Just like uh, there's a scene in Game of Thrones where somebody's getting their nipple cut off and clearly and there's no reason for it. I was like, no. That's <laughs> not a part of the plot. <laughs> I don't, don't want to watch I wonder if, like, how much you enjoy horror movies might, like, correlate with amygdala size. Yeah. I bet somebody's done that study. (laughs) There was this one guy who was, like, counting the amount of neurons in the hippocampus for one seminar I went to, but he forgot to do glia, and I was just like, dude. I'm offended. (laughs) Right? 
Leah are to be appreciated. <laughs> it's just so fabricated in that mm-hmm. sense that maybe. And with that, like I fear we have reached the end. <laughs> we started by sharing some spooky stories in the hopes of getting our amygdala and HBA axes firing. Then we learned about how these systems work together to produce the bodily response recognized as fear or stress, and that the specific stimuli that generate these feelings vary widely between people, which is likely why so many different types of horror movies exist. And Stefania went through all these different categories of horror films in detail, and it was so cool to hear about how they've evolved over time. Gladys discussed her neuroscience research on stress responses, and I can't help but wonder if a neuroscientist's expertise could actually help evolve horror movies even more. Yes, I totally agree. Okay, cue thunder sound effect for the final word. So, the next time you're watching a horror film, pay close attention to what scares you and ask yourself why. You might learn a little bit about how your brain functions. Thank you for listening. We hope it was Skella fun. <laughs> Special thanks and acknowledgments to Patient SM, on whom we relied for a lot of our discussion, and of course, to our incredible guests. We heard some scary stories from our amazing interdisciplinary colleagues, including Dr. Liz Doe, who's working as a research manager at a nonprofit and graduated from BCU with a doctorate in clinical and translational sciences. Dr. Garrett Westlake, the Associate Vice Provost in Innovation and the Executive Director of the Da Vinci Center at BCU. Dr. Nazgul Nerozi, who graduated with a doctorate in nanoscience and nanotechnology from VCU, Margaret Ryan, a laboratory specialist at the University of Virginia, and Deidre. We discussed neuroscience and film with Dr. Gladys Shaw and Dr. Stefania Margitu. Gladys has recently graduated with her doctorate in neuroscience from VCU, and Stefania is a film professor at Loyola University in New Orleans. Student participants were Dr. Kristen Lee, Dr. Megan Syed, Rosamond Goodson, Andy Pitts, Martina Hernandez, Alan Harris, and myself. This episode of Crossmodal was produced and directed by Dr. Kristen Lee. It was edited by Dr. Nico Ikanam, Andy Pitts, and Dr. Kristen Lee. Our logo was designed by Hannah Ayub. Our theme track was produced by Josh Rodenberg. The additional spooky tunes used in this episode were produced by Peter B. Helland on his album Ominous Wind and Kevin McLeod from his vast discography of royalty-free compositions. The tracks used were Ice Demon, Echoes of Time, Bent and Broken, and Satiate. Special considerations to Andy Pitts for introducing us to the wonderful world of audio engineering and providing us with equipment. Get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at crossmodal underscore pod or by sending an email to heycrossmodal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Be sure to come back next time for our final episodes of season one, where we'll learn about the odd romance between the gut and the brain. You won't want to miss this. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time.